Well, good morning again, church. I'm, uh, I'm excited and I'm thankful for this opportunity to share this time of worship with you and to be a small part of the worship that we're bringing to the Lord together as we come to him in prayer and in thanksgiving and in song and in our offerings in our time of communion later today um, and now in the time of hearing from the word. So, uh, in addition to the little brief snapshot earlier uh, as we welcomed you, uh, to tell you one additional thing about myself, it's that I don't always watch television on Saturday mornings, that's not my typical viewing time, Uh, but when I do, it's probably because the Olympics are on. I mean, that's probably, if I'm on the couch on Saturday morning watching TV, it's because there's some semifinal, there's some event or something that's caught my eye. And we just had the Olympics that ended last month. And of course, just such a great spectacle, pageantry, and you see the whole world come together and there's these world-class athletes. So you look at that and you say, I didn't think it was possible for anyone to do that, let alone to do it under pressure, not just like when no one's watching, but in the eyes of the whole entire world. And um, I enjoy all of the Olympics, but there is a special, a particular sort of event that, I don't know, at least for me, it's just a little bit more exciting, more dramatic, and these are the relays, uh, both in swimming and in track and field, uh, to have everything that has to go into those events, um, especially with athletes like Michael Phelps, like Allison Felix, I could name a whole bunch more, just world-class greatest, some of them of all time, arguably, uh, the strategy that goes into having to select the correct member for the correct portion of the race, matching them against the opponents, and the hard work that goes into not just their own training, not just I have to run my portion, but the handoffs, the switches between athletes, you mess one of those up and the whole thing goes down the drain. Uh, And also, ultimately, the emotion that comes at the end, either when you have the joy, the elation of a medal-worthy performance, or the disappointment, the discouragement, sometimes the anguish of what if I had just done this differently that comes from a failed attempt. Well, there there just isn't much like it out there, at least not at that level. And uh, I've enjoyed that this past month, but as I studied the passage, which Pastor Bryce uh, asked me to preach on this morning, I realized that this is a metaphor for two great themes that we see come out. We'll be in Colossians 3 today, and we'll read verses 1 to 17, and I'll read them in a moment, but first to identify these aspects, so you know a little bit of what to look for, what's coming. Colossians 3 chapter, or verses 1 to 17 have a trajectory where as we get deeper into the passage, this is more and more obvious, apparent, and this trajectory is towards togetherness. And that's both an internal togetherness and an external one. Internal, uh, because we can understand Jesus with our minds, and that's good, and that's a place to start. But until we desire him with our hearts, and until we obey him with our hands, we're only running part of the race. We've only got one person out there on the track when we need the whole team. Uh, And correspondingly, externally, we can try and follow Jesus on our own. Again, a good place to start is you have to make that decision. But until we're racing with others on our same team, uh, that is the church, we won't be able to go the whole distance. We won't be able to finish the race well. We need that encouragement. We need those fresh legs when we're tired. We need those fresh 
people to come alongside us and help us when we're flagging, uh, or else we'll be at a disadvantage from the starting line. This is a message for all of us today. Whether you've never been a part of a church before uh, and are still skeptical if you even want to be part of a church, and maybe you only came because somebody invited you today or you don't even know why you're here, actually, from that extreme to the other extreme of those of us here who've grown up our whole lives in church, have never known anything other than being a part of the body of Christ, or maybe most of us are somewhere in between those two extremes, But wherever we are on that spectrum of an experience of togetherness with others, Paul has a a word for us. The Spirit wishes to speak to us all today. Uh, So as we open God's word together this morning to Colossians 3, I'll read the passage and then I'll pray briefly for us and then we'll look in more detail. Uh, So Colossians 3, 1 to 17, and I'm reading from the ESV. So... If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ on high in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, And patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord, and let me pray for us. Lord, we do want to come to you and give thanks to you uh, through Christ in all things, Would we do everything in your name, including now, sitting, hearing, looking to your word? Spirit, would you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things out of your law? Because without you working in our hearts, we're going to miss it. So God, we know that you are present here amidst your people. Would we feel and experience that presence? Would you speak to our hearts today? We love you, Lord. And we ask this in your name. Amen. 
So, by way of quick review, uh, the past two weeks, we as a church have been in Colossians. That's why we're here today, and uh, this series is a transition from, over the summer, the uh, Wisdom of Solomon, the Summer with Solomon series that Pastor Bryce has been preaching through, and we're transitioning into a period of looking at stewardship, Uh, but for now, these past two weeks and today, we're in Colossians. And uh, the first week, so two weeks ago, Uh, We looked at Colossians 1, verses 3 to 14, uh, where Paul prays for the Colossians. And in this prayer, you can feel, you can sense, it just bleeds off the page, Paul's affections, his emotions for these people, his deep desires for them and uh, for the people at Colossae. And we saw last week in verses 15 to 20 of that same chapter, several immense truths about who Christ is. As Paul explained that Jesus was, among other things, part of the act of creation itself. That Jesus reveals God to us. He's the image of the invisible God. And that Jesus is the head of the church. So we've got Paul's heart. And then we've got him transferring some knowledge, some information. And now, after those things, Paul here in chapter 3 turns his attention to the practical. This is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, So we we come to a turn in the book. And uh, to break down the structure a little bit here, it's a lot of verses, and I wish we had time to look at every word of them and every detail, because it's so rich here in this portion. But what we're going to do is just look at four sections that it's broken down into and four corresponding points that kind of sums up. What is Paul saying here? Uh, So the first four verses, verses 1 to 4 in chapter 3, serve as kind of an introduction that kind of makes that turn from information and affection to practical. And he gives the reasons for what follows, the motivation for our living. Verses 5 to 11 address the believer's past and current circumstances. And Paul gives some negative commands, some prohibitions. He says, do not do these things. Put these things off. Take off the old. In verses 12 to 17, Paul has positive exhortations. Do these things. You've taken these off, now put this on. So he shifts to the positive. And this last section, we can even subdivide it into like positive virtues. Uh, and then also instructions about life together in the church. So now, that's kind of the view from 30,000 feet up. Now let's zoom in a little bit, a little bit more detail. Uh, so we start with two commands in this chapter. In verse 1, Paul says, Seek the things that are above, or as the NIV or some other translations might say, set your heart on the things that are above. And in verse 2, he says, set your minds on things that are above. So the, the reason that the NIV says that for this word, seek, uh, set your hearts on things, is because this is a very active, intense desire. It's a very focused looking. It's not like, well, kind of glance around, and if you see it, great, you can follow it, that'd be great, but don't worry about it, it's fine. No, this is a very directive, intense, it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6.33 when he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's, It's that same thing. Jesus isn't saying, well, you know, if you run across it, that'll be great. He's saying, no, this is your priority. This is what your affections, your desires, your emotions need to be centered on is the kingdom. And Paul's saying the same thing here. So, he's incorporating the heart and the mind and saying these are what must power and inform 
your practical actions. This is, you're supposed to put heavenly living into practice, but that leaves us with a few questions. First of all, why? Why is this worth doing? I, it helps me a lot if I know the reason for something that someone else has asked me to do. Oh, it's going to help in this way. Or, oh, here's the benefit. Or here's what would happen if it didn't happen. Uh, it just helps me a little bit to get there. Um, but second of all, what do we need to do? What are heavenly things versus earthly things? If I want to do it, okay, great. Now what are the details, Paul? Uh, and then the next question is, how? How do we do it? If I know the reason... And I know what we're supposed to do, but we don't have a game plan or steps to get there. Uh, and that's not always my strong point. Uh, the details, the middle. Um, it, you, you need all of those together. Or you're going to be frustrated, or you're not going to even try at all. And so thankfully here in the Word, we have these laid out for us. So to answer the first question, why should we do this? Uh, we must do this because we are raised with Christ. So our first point is because we are raised with Christ. In verses 1 to 4, Paul gives us this motivation, and he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, and this is a hypothetical where Paul is expecting a positive response. He's saying, if you've been raised with Christ, parentheses, and you have, therefore. It's almost like he's saying, since you've been raised with Christ, or because you've been raised with Christ, do these things. And... We know that we've been raised. We have the promise of resurrection with Christ. First of all, because Christ has been raised. If Christ hadn't been raised from the dead, then we have no hope. Then there's nothing in the future for us. And there's no present effect either. But we know that he has been. That's the message of the gospel. That Christ is raised on our behalf. He is alive. He is risen just as he said. Charles Spurgeon, in his book, All of Grace, puts it this way. You're not asked to trust in a dead Jesus, but one who, though he died for our sins, lives for our justification. We are all asked to trust in a risen Christ, and one of the promises is that we too shall be raised with him. Christ is raised and lives today, and that characterizes this whole first paragraph. In verse 1, uh, Paul describes him as seated at God's right hand. Uh, in verse 3, we see that, as the hymn we sung today says, our life is hid with Christ on high. And in verse 4, Paul promises, reminds us, that Christ is coming again. So to sum it up, in his past death and in his present life, and in his future return, Jesus is our motivation for holy living. He's our reason for doing this. So Jesus is our why, because without him, we don't have a good enough reason to seek heavenly things. For self-interest, or to be altruistic and help other people by becoming better people ourselves. We don't have the freedom, we don't have the ability, we don't even have the desire to seek what's above instead of heavenly or earthly things. But with Christ, we have all of that and more. And that leads from the why into the what. So because we are raised with Christ, we must first rid ourselves of the old. And that's the second idea, that we rid ourselves of the old. In verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. That's the strongest language that he could have used there. It's not like, oh, well, you know, try. And give it the old college try, and if it doesn't work out, 
well, there's tomorrow, you know, or you can get started whenever you want. This is just good advice. No, this is a life and death struggle for Paul, where you will kill your sin or your sin will kill you. The stakes couldn't be higher. And what we're to put to death are both sins that are more inward-focused. The first list here in verse 5, where he says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Sure, if if those things are fulfilled, enacted, if because you're covetousness, you steal, or if because you have these evil desires, you have ill will towards somebody, you end up hurting them. Sure, it affects other people, but those are things that very much start internally. They reveal a condition of our hearts. So he says, put off those things, but also put off things that are more external or have more obvious targets. In verse 8, he says, you must put them all away, anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then he says, don't lie to one another in the next verse. These are community-focused things. These all have victims or targets or people who are damaged, hurt by these sins. And it's almost like Paul is saying with both of these lists, you can't have social harmony without first looking inward and saying, I need, I need to fix myself. I'm part of the problem here. And you similarly, if you have that, it'll come out in your actions with other people. Uh, the internal, if Christ has made his home in your heart, it'll affect your relationships with other people. And so he's saying both realms, both, both spheres, put off this old behavior. You need both. But we can't simply put off old behavior. Uh, as we know, with any habit that we're trying to change or anything we're trying to start, if you just stop doing something, it's very, very easy to have that vacuum there And just slip into what you're doing before. To just, well, might as well anyways. Um, We need to, instead of just putting off the old, we need to put on the new. And so this is our third point. Because we're raised with Christ, and as we rid ourselves of the old, we must thirdly robe ourselves in the new. We must put on new behavior and attitude. And in verses 12 to 14, Paul sets out what we're to replace those earthly former behaviors with. And as the paragraph goes on, and as we move towards the end of this section here, it picks up more and more of an others-focused flavor. Uh, The whole passage has been communal. Paul is talking in the third-person plural. He's saying, you all need to do this, not just an individual. This isn't directed towards one person. He's saying, you all need to do this together Um, And we see that in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, plural, not just one person. Uh, And he says that you're holy and beloved with compassionate hearts. All of our hearts need to be affected by this, not just one person. He says, put on kindness and humility, meekness and patience. So we see that like implicitly, but then Paul makes it very explicit because he says in verse 13, bearing with one another. You can't bear with one another unless you have another, unless you've got somebody else to bear with and, or someone else has you to put up with. Uh, so you need to bear with one another. And he says if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, sure, it is necessary to forgive ourselves and to not be too hard on ourselves, to give ourselves grace as God has given us grace. But just as importantly is forgiving others. And again, you need others to be in your life to even have a chance at putting this command into practice. 
Paul's realistic here, by the way. He's not saying, just, it's going to be great. You know, be together and have a lot of fun and a lot of potlucks and everything and go for it. He's saying if one has a complaint against one another, knowing there are going to be people who have that, and they need to hear from the Lord and have him speak in their life just as much as anybody else, anyone who pretends they don't have something like that going on. And uh, because of this communal flavor, I mean, in verse 15, he makes it the most explicit, saying, you were called to peace in one body. Peace in relationships, but unity in one body. Because of this communal nature, we need to add a fourth idea to having been raised with Christ and ridding ourselves of the old and robing ourselves with the new. And this last idea is that we must remember Jesus Christ together. Uh, The English poet and Anglican priest John Donne famously said that no man is an island entire of himself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And that's a pretty... uh, interesting idea. It's a very beautiful idea that we're all connected somehow by our shared humanity and by the uh, image of God that we share just by creation, just by being human. But if that's true of just people in general, then how much more is it true of us, we who are Christians, who not only have been created by God's hand, but have been recreated in Christ's image and who have been called into one body together. We're called to Christ And simultaneously, we are called to each other. In one body, we are to be thankful. In one body, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. In one body, we are to teach and admonish and to sing and to be thankful. In the body of Christ, we are to experience the peace of Christ, be indwelt by the word of Christ, and do this all in the name of Christ. And so we're left with a message from this passage that is at once both wonderful and sobering. It's wonderful because isn't this what we all want? Don't we all want inner healing, inner wholeness, to not be plagued by thoughts and actions and activities that we know it's not us. We know we're not supposed to be that way, but we can't stop. Or we wish that things were like this or like that. Don't we all want inner wholeness? And don't we all want outer harmony with other people? To not have relationships that disintegrate. To not have people that we just don't talk to anymore. Or that we always have to have our guard up with. Or these two things, who doesn't want them? But it's sobering because we know that on our own, we can't get there. On our own... We, as humans, we've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God, and this infects us down to even our deepest and most basic desires. Our motivations, our impulses, they're all laced with this sin. And it simply isn't natural for us to do what Paul's telling us to do here. It's not natural for us to set our hearts on God. It's not natural for us to set our minds on him. It's so natural to set our minds here on earthly things and our hearts on things that are earthly as well. So left to our own devices, these exhortations of Paul's here leave us, off no, better, leave us no better off than when we, first, when we hadn't heard them before. But the wonderful message of the gospel is that we are not left to our own devices. The message of the gospel is that though we are helpless and powerless and weak, 
Our Savior is our helper. Our Savior is our strength. And our Savior is our life. We're reminded by verse 17 at the end here that Christ is the only answer, the only hope, the only way for us to go forward. And he's the only way for us to do everything because Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever we do, it needs to be motivated by, powered by, and done for Jesus. It's none but Jesus. As one Bible scholar notes about this verse, God has come to the world through Jesus. And it's through Jesus that the world must come to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way. He's the only one. And so that's what we're left with this morning. A set of exhortations that remind us, or perhaps let us know for the first time, that God, to reach God, we must go through Jesus, who is our advocate, our mediator, and our Savior. Now, if you've never made this decision before, to go to God through Jesus, there will be a time of response during the last song here. If you want to see lasting change in your life, and you want it to start today, then I implore you to go to God. To ask Jesus, the one who died for your sins and lives for your justification, for everything. For help. For a new start. He'll welcome you with open arms into his family this morning, if that's what you desire. Don't wait. Don't delay to make a decision that will make all the difference when he returns, as the scripture says he will. In glory. For those of us who have already made this sort of commitment, there are many potential applications of this passage, and I won't go through all of them, but I will ask you to pay attention. Where did your mind go during this sermon? Where did your heart go? What came to mind? Were you thinking of some sin that you've been trying to leave and you haven't had the motivation to put off and you read these words and you say, I know that this characterizes me and it shouldn't. Perhaps you thought of an individual, a person, with whom you don't have the relationship that you once did, who they've hurt you or you've hurt them. And you need this forgiveness that as the Lord has forgiven you, you need to forgive somebody else. Could have been all sorts of things, but... Where was the Spirit working in your heart? Pay attention to that. Think of that, and I ask that you would take it to Jesus and take some step forward today, this afternoon, before the week is out. This is the perfect chance to say, God, I want to put on the new. Help me to do that. But finally, we don't even have to wait to put this text into practice. We have an opportunity right now to together, in unity, remember Jesus and what he's done for us and to express our thankfulness to him. Twice at the end of this passage, Paul mentions thankfulness, and the word he uses is eucharisteo in the Greek. And this is the same word that because, as we'll hear from uh, Corinthians, when Jesus broke the bread, he gave thanks for it during the Last Supper Because that happened, that was a word, a term for the Last Supper, the Eucharist. It's where it comes from, the giving thanks. And 
together we have an opportunity to put his exhortations to be thankful to God through Christ. To remember Christ, whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled on our behalf, but who was raised again for our sake and is coming again soon and in the meantime gives us a new way to live with our minds and hearts set on heaven and with a life in community in his body. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful to you for your word, but God, even the glorious truths of the gospel can become chains and become legalism if we leave and the message is, do this, try harder, it's all up to you. Thank you, God, that the price has been paid, that the way has been cleared, that you ever live and breathe to give our plea. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And would we respond? Would we respond in this moment as we take communion? Would we respond as we go throughout our day? Lord, we love you, and we want to live for you. Would you help us to do that? Um, We ask this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.